You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is an Australian freelance writer, blogger, and author with more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 34 of So You Want to Be a Writer. This is Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you today, Alison? Well, I'm I'm excited, and I'm also somewhat befuddled, I guess, is the best way to describe it. Why is this? <laughs> well, my book came out today. It's Yay! on the shelves as we speak, which accounts for the excitement bit. But it's one of those things I think that until you actually put a book out there, you don't really understand how incredibly anticlimactic it can also <laughs> feel <laughs> because you kind of like you wake up and you go, yes, today's the day and then you take the kids to school and come home and write a finance story because that's what you're doing today. <laughs> the book goes out and you just wait to see what happens next. So for you, it's a very, very funny feeling. So what exactly are you befuddled about? Well, just why I feel this way. I, I kind of feel like I should be, I don't know, out drinking champagne with, you know, grapes being peeled for me and yet, um, <laughs> yet okay. I'm packing Vegemite sandwiches and writing about, you know, how to sort your life out before you go on maternity leave. Cool. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Such is the working writer's life, Val. Well, congratulations. The highs and the lows. Congratulations Thank you. on yes, the release I'm, of your book. I'm really excited. I I'm think excited it's amazing too. and I know it's going to go brilliantly. So, everyone, go check out Alison's book, which is called The Mapmaker Chronicles: A Race to the End of the World. And it's about It's about um, a race to map the world. It's a fantasy adventure, so it's set in a slightly alternative place and it's um yeah, it's exciting. It's got all sorts of, you know, it's got big storms and it's got fights and battles because, of course, Mr. Ten told me that that's what you needed in a book. Mm. And, um, yeah, it's very, very exciting. So what age group is it for? It's um, aimed at the sort of 8 to 13 group mm. um, and it's a, it's the first in a trilogy. So this one is out today Yo! and <laughs> then there's another one coming in April and then there's a third one out next October so three in the next year very exciting very exciting well anyway, so I'm glad to be talking to you Val because at least that gives me a little bit of a yay <laughs> yeah it's awesome it's fantastic <laughs> it is well what I about hope you? well I uh went to bed after 5 a.m so I'm hoping what? that I am going to stay lucid in this podcast uh, yeah, till 5am. I, I was out just, of town. Uh, no, I was not out on the town. I wish it was something that exciting. I just got completely and utterly lost in writing. What? So the last thing I knew it was like 1130 or something. So I thought, oh, I'll just write this thing, you know, whatever I was writing. And the next thing I knew, I looked at the clock and it said 456 and I just went, oh, my God, I've got to go to bed because I've got to get up and go to work and go to meetings and record podcasts. And so, um, yeah, I had a shower and went to bed eventually and 
Um, uh, it's been a while since I got that lost in writing. But what, def- were you, what were you working on? I um, have to ask because I can't even remember the last time that, that that happened to me. Sure. Well, I wasn't writing about storms and battles or <laughs> anything like that. Interestingly, I just thought I would start writing an article that, um, you know, uh, I'm, I've been commissioned to write for the Virgin In-Flight magazine. Oh. You know, it's called Voyeur. And um, it's it's a feature article for, for the magazine and somehow it just mesmerised me. Wow. <laughs> and I honestly lost track of time. I do not go to bed at 5am on a regular basis. No. Uh, but um, it's, I just got completely lost in it. So um, wow. I'm, I may well pay the price today by falling asleep in the middle of the podcast. I'm looking forward to um, reading it, Val. <laughs> if it was that mesmerising to write, to write, imagine what it's going to be like to read. I'm really looking forward to it. There you go. It'll be in the January issue anyway. <laughs> Excellent. All right, I'll be looking out for it. So what's been happening in the world of blogging and publishing and writing this week, Al? Well, I, I just thought um, I was sort of cruising around looking at the 80,000 links a week that I look at um, <laughs> as part of my job. It's actually quite nice to be, for it to be part of your job, to be reading, writing articles, etc. But I came across a post on the Huffington Post um, and it was about the sales of books and the basic um, premise of the whole thing is that print books outsold e-books in the first half of 2014, mm. um, which suggests, you know, that the fans of print books who've been desperately worried that they're going to go the way of typewriters (laughs) (laughs) and become just, you know, something that people collect in the future, um, are possibly can sort of sleep safer in their beds because while e-books, I think this is what a lot of people have been saying for a long time, that e-books were not the death knell for books but rather an adjunct. And I think that that's probably proving to be the case. I think the fact that people can buy your book in different formats can only be a good thing. No, well, that, that's my thinking. I mean, I have to say that I, I am still a dinosaur and I do prefer to read a print book. But I think that's partly because it feels like a break from a screen for me. Mm. I, I find that it's – I find it to be – I know that I'm, I'm escaped. I'm not working if I'm looking at the book. And I think that that's partly what it is. For me, reading on screen just feels like work, you know, so, yeah. to, so that's why I prefer them. But what about you? Like are you a print or an ebook I'm both. user? I'm both, but I find that the ebook is the thing that I definitely go to if it's, you know, 2 a.m. and I go, oh my God, that looks like an interesting book. And the danger of Amazon's one click to buy button is something that I, that I succumb to uh, many, many times. And because I have that instant gratification, having said yeah. that, I do actually prefer to read on print books. So even though people say things like, oh, your Kindle, reading on your Kindle is great if you're on the plane or if you're, you know, whatever, um, I do find that every single time almost that I get on a plane, Thank God, you know, they're, they're very clever that they've got the bookshops there at the airports. You know, they've always got bookshops and underwear. <laughs> yes. Yes, that's so true. Lots of people obviously forget their underwear and that's why Victoria's Secret is in many of the airports in Australia. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> that would be it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I digress. So um, I always end up buying a book and reading it on the plane and it's, and it's just, I love it, a, a print book obviously yeah. and um, it's a great escape. I love it. It's fantastic. So I, I'm, I'm a bit of both actually. 
Right, okay. But moving on to an interesting link I found this week, um, and it's more specific for non-fiction writers. It's not really for creative writers or novelists or anything like that, but I thought it was an interesting link because it's how to write paragraphs. Now, I, I hear you smirk. Right. I'm not smirking. I'm, I'm, I'm just, yep, okay. <laughs> Well, I hear you make an interesting one. noise. Yes. And um, and I think that's it's it's useful because I often do see from time to time people who break some cardinal rules um, when it comes to writing paragraphs. Now, you might think that G paragraphs aren't that difficult to master. However, um, uh, there's a couple of points here. The link has... Uh, outline six common paragraph problems and I thought I would highlight out of these the ones that I see from time to time and number one is where the author starts with a backward link to the previous paragraph now it should when you start a new paragraph it should be a new concept or a new idea or whatever if it's still part of um, an idea if you're still in the middle of an idea of the previous paragraph then you probably shouldn't be breaking for a new paragraph having said that there there is always the danger, and I see this a lot as well. And you know, I get there with and get happy as an editor with my return key. Um, is that some often people write paragraphs that are too long, and it says here that extending beyond the acceptable research text range of uh, one hundred to two hundred words, or, or up to three hundred words or more, is is you know like a, is breaking the rules. Um, now, of course. That's not a hard and fast rule. It's got to depend on, you know, what you're trying to say and all the rest of it. And bear in mind, this is very specific to nonfiction mm. um, because sometimes when you're getting a bit literary, you may want a long paragraph for some reason. Um, so, yeah, but there's also there's also the opposite where the paragraph is too short. Uh, and this is sometimes where people just kind of go uh, – I, and I see this a lot among feature writers where – they literally start a new paragraph every sentence yeah. or every two sentences and it's simply not necessary. So what do you think? Do you think people have paragraph problems like I do? Um, yeah, no, I do. Like as I, I know I was making, you know, strange noises, Funny noises. when you mentioned it. <laughs> um, I think it's one of those things, I guess uh, – you don't. I guess when you've been writing as long as I have, I don't think about paragraphs anymore but having said that, my uh, son, who is in second grade, is learning how to use paragraphs at the moment. And the foundations of paragraphs, you you forget, you know, when you've learned them so long ago, you do forget them. Um, the biggest problem that I see, um, particularly with uh, writer centre students, is the paragraphs where we're learning to write feature articles, the paragraphs are too long. Mm. Um, generally speaking, with a feature article, you want it to be shorter so that you can, so that the reader's eye is bouncing through the text and is not sort of weighed down anywhere. And most of the time, as you say, the reason that the paragraph is too long is that that there are two ideas within that paragraph and it's easy enough just to like whack in a return, Mm. which I also love. I love a good (laughs) return. Um, So that's probably the biggest problem. But it's interesting, like I was, I'm reading the the end of this this article that that you're referencing and they're saying that, um, you know, journalists in particular will will write short paragraphs and, and I know that I do that. Um, and when it came to writing my non-fiction books, um, I had to actually really think about the paragraphs there because when you're dealing with narrow columns, shorter paragraphs look fine. 
But when you space them out over an entire page as per yes. a book, they are sometimes too short. So there is there is very much a, you have to kind of think in in your head a little bit about where is this going to appear and what is this going to look like? Because if it looks too spacey, Mm. then people are thinking that there's no substance to it whatsoever, which is not a good look either. Mm. Um, So there you go. Like I I scoffed and yet (laughs) there is more to discuss with paragraphs than I could ever have imagined. Well, let's see if you scoff at my next link, which is I found a link about um, how do you you take criticism? Because, you know, as writers, um, firstly, if you're a freelance feature writer, you may sometimes take criticism from your editor who may want things changed or feel that there are gaps or there's something missing or whatever. But likewise, if you're a creative writer and you're writing short stories or novels, it's really useful to workshop with other writers because you get really invaluable feedback but part of that feedback is you know critiquing your piece and I I have come across some people who just don't take criticism very well at all in fact there are some writers I've you know seen who've basically said well obviously you just don't get it Mm, (laughs) yes and it's like, yeah, oh, well, I don't get it. That's because – and maybe you need to write it in a different way so that I do get it. So how do you – what do you think? Do you, do you come across many people who find criticism constructive or actually get quite defensive about it? Well, generally speaking, the people that I'm dealing with now are, are taking – criticism well because they're asking for it mm-hmm. um, in the sense that, you know, I'm, I'm mostly like I'm, I'm critiquing the work of students or I have a couple of mentorees that I work with and I think that, you know, me t- saying to them, oh, this is lovely and it's wonderful and it's all good is not helpful at all. Um, even though it may be wonderful and all good, um, it's not helpful. There is, there's always something in there that I can talk about with them and that's what I do and that's what they ask me for. So from that perspective, they take criticism well. However, um, I have dealt with a lot of people in the past who haven't taken criticism well at all and, you know, it's a, it's a difficult thing because you're not – when you're in the position of editing somebody's work or critiquing somebody's work, you're really not setting out to wound them mortally. No. All you're trying to do is bring out the best in the work and I think that that's something um, that is is sometimes overlooked. It's it's particularly difficult with creative writing and novels because – um, it is so difficult not to take it personally because it is you, you, you know, you've poured yourself out there on the page and someone's saying, well, look, I really think that maybe your main character needs a bit of work. Is, and there, an, is there an art to giving criticism? There is a very – that was going to be my next point. I oh. think that sometimes um, people don't give criticism well at mm. all and that there is an art to thinking constructively. And I, I I've, you know, I can I – can, can say this because I've received criticism my entire life as a professional writer. You know, my work has been edited, critiqued, rejected, you know, you name it. It's all, you know, and when you work on staff, on magazines and places like that, you, um, you know, people are too busy to really take your feelings into consideration. They're just like, this is not right and throw it back at you and off you go, do it again. Um, And particularly when you're starting out and you really need to learn just that that's the, it's not about you. It's about the work. The work is not right. The work doesn't fit the magazine. You need to go away and think about it again. So I have learned over the years to 
to develop a very thick skin, mm. but that is not to say that I did not take some very, very deep scratches <laughs> <laughs> in my early days. And I used to get so angry sometimes about mm. it. And then I realised at the end of the day that, you know, I just need to produce a piece that's going to be publishable. Mm. That's it. Mm. That's that's the name of the game, you know. Um, so, you know, you do get, get get better at it. These days I'm just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> whatever yeah okay the reality is just don't take it personally and you know think it think of it well try not to like it's not easy Mm. it's not easy like I mean and it is something I mean I I think it's kind of sad that I'm all whatever about it now like what does that say about me (laughs) just I'll take your criticism throw it at me baby um but yeah I think it's yeah it is it is you know to try and remember that it's about the work and not about you Mm. is probably the key to it and so let's move on to our next link, which is about poetry. Yes. I just realised that we've never, well, we don't really talk about poetry much and, and lots of people don't talk about poetry and mm. I think that's a really sad thing because poetry can be such a beautiful Not thing. Not a lot in Australia, it's true. No, that's right. And so I came across an article on the BBC News and it's called Top 10 Tips for Being a Successful Poet, <laughs> which really kind of got me in because I thought, okay, we're, we're, really? Okay. Um, and Sir Andrew Motion, who's an English poet and novelist, he was the Poet Laureate of the United Kingdom from 1999 to 2009. He's wow. got lots of awards. How, how did you get is, that job? I have no idea. But this is a man who clearly knows about poetry and he talks his way, like he just describes you know his own journey and he talks about you know his top 10 tips and he you know his first one is let your subject find you and it's kind of a thing where he talks about where he got his subject from his his poetry and his subject ended up being sort of about death which is you know a sad subject to be having Mm. but as he said you don't find your subject it finds you and Mm. so you start writing your poetry maybe to work through the sorts of things that are going on in your life um, he talks about writing about subjects that matter to you. Um, he talks about um, using everything in your toolbox. So, you know, he says he hasn't written a rhyming poem for a long time because he's sort of lost his appetite for it. But he sort of wouldn't discount ever using it again because, you know, it's a it's a it's something in his toolbox and he will use it again. Um, you know, he talks about letting the work be open to interpretation because I think with poetry – it's one of those things where you can write what you mean and somebody else is going to read it and take on something completely different mm. and that's okay as far as he's concerned. He sort of talks about the fact that, you know, it, poetry can be a world that your readers go and discover and live in for themselves. Um, and he talks about, you know, reading your work out loud, which I mm. um, which I would advise for any type of writing really. Like I, I've discovered the benefits of reading aloud particularly with writing the Mapmaker Chronicles, I read it aloud to my children and it really honestly highlights the clunk so much that you would yeah. never notice if you were just reading it on a screen or reading it on a page. Um, and it really helps you to kind of fix those sentences that maybe aren't quite right. Um, and I would imagine, because I, I mean, I don't actually write poetry, Val. Do you? Do you write poetry? No, not these days. I think when I was younger and a bit more emo, um, I probably attempted to do it a bit more then because and, – and I think that the poems that have stuck with me in my life are very emo-type poems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, because it lends itself to, uh, you know, that emotion and that angst and all that, 
meaning and all that kind of stuff. So um, maybe poetry was like the emo of its time. Well, I, I think there's poetry in everything. Like I, I went to see Missy Higgins um, play on Thursday night um, locally and like her her lyrics, there's so much poetry in those, but mm. she's also covered off, she's done an album of covers where she, she sings, you know, obviously other people's songs and um, she sang a couple of songs there, one by Slim Dusty and one by The Drones, The Drones one which I had heard in its original version and you know how you often hear a song in its original version and the words mm. just sort of wash over you mm. but when somebody sings it with a guitar or a oh, piano yeah. on their own and you yeah. hear the words. Magical. And the words in that song are just beautiful and if there's not poetry in that and I, I also feel like, you know, there's a lot of rap um, artists out there. I mean, I don't know what the actual, you know, cool term for those people is these days, but <laughs> but I, I, there's there's a lot of po- there, I think that is the poetry of this generation is that yeah. sort of you know work. And I, I you know where I mean the, I know that there are a lot of people out there still running you know beautiful poems as well, but I think that the poetry that's being heard is in songs and, well, and, and poetry rap. slams and you know poetry slams. Word events and that exactly. sort of thing which, like blogger uh, Eden Riley went to the semi-finals for the mm. for the recent poetry slam and like well like how cool is that I thought I have amazing. to say that I'm slightly I'm ever so slightly terrified of them of poetry you, of going to them or of yes, being in I, them I have been to them and um and I thoroughly enjoy them and I admire you know the people who get up and and uh, will perform in a sense, um, but I'm I'm terrified of somebody just coming over to me and saying, "Okay, over to you." <laughs> oh, really? What do you think they're just going to drag you out of the audience? <laughs> yeah, you know, like <laughs> you know, like when you're right, at a now comedy you stand night up and, and make up a poem on the spot. Off you exactly. Go. <laughs> I've been to ones that are like that. I went and hid in a corner. Oh my god, I went too. <laughs> All right, so obviously we're not getting our poetry on today. What else have you got? What's happening with uh, the with Richard Flanagan? Oh, Richard yes. Now that was a very, very interesting article. So I was reading The Age and there's a story in there about what winning the Man Booker Prize would mean for Richard Flanagan. Now we've talked in the past about um, awards and, you know, do they matter and why yep. would you want one and all that sort of stuff. I mean, you know, seriously, why would you not? But anyway, um, but we have done that in the past. But this this particular article outlines in detail what happens if somebody wins a big prize like that. He has been nominated, he's shortlisted for The Narrow Road to the Deep North, which is a novel about prisoners and their guards on the Burma Railway during World War II. And it's been, according to this article, it's been selling well in Australia since publication last September um, around sort of that's a Nielsen book scan, which is print copies only, is around, six, you know, more than 60,000 copies. But if he wins the Man Booker Prize, they're saying that there would be a significant boost to his sales, not only here in Australia, but also in the Northern Hemisphere, mm. of course, because it's a, you know, it's a, um, a worldwide prize. So it's only come out in, in um, Britain in July and, of course, it's got shortlisted, so it's been given a boost. But they're saying that if, if the, um, if the, if he wins, um, they have a small format edition of the Narrow Road scheduled for publication in Australia next month. But if he wins, then those more than ten thousand copies would be released within twenty four hours. Wow! Because it's the kind of demand that they would be expecting yep. would be um, generated by this kind of win. I just found it really, I find it a really interesting, you know thing that you know that 
it does make a such a significant difference to sales to win For something sure. like that. Yeah, definitely. And I hope it, I hope it goes well, you know. Yeah, it's, yeah you know, Good luck, Richard. And oh, I think that the, the important thing is that, I mean, there's no doubt that winning a prize is going to impact your sales, is going to increase your sales. Um, and I think what's important is to then make sure that you build on that and don't necessarily expect that, that if you do nothing or if you don't continue to build your profile or whatever, that your next book is, you know, automatically going to achieve the same level of sales. Um, and I'm reminded, of, in fact, I've written a post about it uh, on the Writer's Centre blog about what authors can do to, to promote their book, their own books, as opposed to just imploring readers to buy them. There's proactive things that authors can do to try and increase their sales. And I'm reminded of a former Man Booker Prize winner who, um, you know, the, their first book did very, very well because it won the prize. And the second book, which had been out for a few months by the time I had this conversation, um, had been, pub you know, was released to great fanfare because it was, you know, it came from a Man Booker Prize winner. And it was released in, you know, 13 countries or something. And they confided in me that well, they didn't just confide in me. They openly stated that the book had only sold 600 copies worldwide. And... Ooh. Yeah. And wow. Yeah. It was, a sh it was shocking. We, I, was, it, I was gobsmacked. And, you know, it's probably sold more by now. But at the time, even though it had been out for a few months and it had um, uh, been released in so many countries, 600 copies worldwide. And, and I think that that was, to be honest... It, a direct relation to the fact that the author had not um, made the most of the, you know, advantage that she was given by winning the winning the prize the first time around was not proactive in building their platform and um, was just not a pleasant person to their fans. Right. Yeah. Okay. And, so not accessible to their fans. Uh, that's one way to put it. Okay, I'm just, yeah, I'm being friendly. <laughs> and um, not, not accessible. And, you know, fans, you, you know, if you're going to treat them badly, they're not going to continue being your fans. Okay, interesting. Very yes. interesting. And hey, segues us hey. beautifully into yes. our writing craft book. Yes. Which I'm just going to share with you right now. So I'm reading the, I'm doing my link checking, et cetera, that I do, and I come across a blog called The One Big Reason Some Blogs Succeed While Others Crash and Burn. Now, seriously, who's not going to read that, right? So there I am and I'm reading along and I'll just give you the tip that basically you need to create value for your readers. You need to be useful. That's the tip that I got from that particular blog post. But it was written by a guy called Chuck Sambuccino who writes a lot on Writer's Digest and, you know, has his column and has his blog and does a whole bunch of stuff, like he's everywhere, um, American guy. And he's written a book called Create Your Writer Platform. So I thought to myself, well, Chuck knows what he's talking about, so I'm going to buy this book and have a read because I'm sure that my podcast listeners will be fascinated by everything I have to say about this. Um, and I would have to say that this is one of the best books on this subject that I have read, and I've read a few these days, and I'm often reading blogs and things like that. It's a very nuts and bolts um, kind of a guide. It's very interesting because he's got it's not just Chuck telling us his story. It's Chuck talking to agents and Chuck talking to publishers and Chuck talking to a whole range of different people um, and other authors, of course, who've done this. Um, 
for their best tips and their insight and their anecdotes, things they've done wrong, things they've done right, all that sort of stuff. So, and that's all in the book. And I, yeah, I have to say that I would very heartily recommend it. It is a, it is a really, really well constructed and I thought very, very well, much like Chuck's very, very useful blog post. It's a very, very useful book. So, um, it's Wonderful. called. Create your writer platform, the key to building an audience, selling more books and finding success as an author. And I think that if it's something, you know, that you're interested in doing, it's well worth a read. And we'll put the link in the show notes, which of we course will. you can find at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast. But uh, while we're talking about authors, let's get straight into our writer in residence this week. Who let's, is it, Al? Let's do that. Um, good question. Our writer in residence this week <laughs> is the fantastic Rebecca James. Now, Rebecca's new book, Cooper Bartholomew is Dead, is out now, um, just in the last like minute and a half. And <laughs> We had a very interesting conversation because Rebecca is somebody who whose debut novel a few years ago caused a huge splash. There was a massive amount of publicity around it. There was um, a big advance. There was a lot of discussion. Um, and she talks about that particular instance and she also talks about what's happened since then and the impact that that, um, that big splash of publicity has had on her writing career and on the way she's approached writing and all that sort of stuff. So it was, um, it's a great, really great conversation and I think that our listeners will get a lot out of it. So have a listen. Rebecca James is an Australian YA author whose debut novel, Beautiful Malice, sparked an aggressive bidding war worldwide. Try saying that quickly. And was published in 2010 to much fanfare and acclaim. She has since written two more novels, including Cooper Bartholomew is Dead, which is out now. So welcome, Rebecca, and thank you for coming to our show. Thanks for having me. Let's begin with Beautiful Malice, which of course was a very big story in publishing circles at the time. Can you tell us the story of that novel's road to publication? Oh, sure. Um, well, first of all, I wrote the book, which took a um, couple of years. Um, it wasn't, I wasn't a writer there. I mean, I wasn't working full-time then. I had a business and my four kids. Um, then when I had a finished draft, I set about getting an agent. Right. Um, I emailed kind of agents all over the world, had loads and loads of rejections, about 80, but I was getting some good feedback. Um, a lot of people were saying, you know, I really loved the book, but not sure how to sell it. So um, I knew I had a story that people enjoyed, so I, I, pers- I kept going. Right. And then eventually I got an agent in London, a woman called Jo Unwin. Yeah. We worked on it a bit together for about six months, and then she submitted it in Australia. And after a few weeks, Alan, Alan and Unwin, um, Erica Wagner from Alan and Unwin offered, offered on it. And okay. that was, yeah. And then, so what was uh, the time process on that? Like you said, it took you a couple of years to write. How long did it find take you to find an agent? So it took two years to write. I think it was must have been about six months to get an agent. To, to, uh, from the date when I first, you know, started sending out query emails yep. to the day Joe said yes, I'll take you on because I okay. remember it was just before Christmas. And then what? Another six to eight months after that. Then it was another. It was... We worked together on on it for about four. Uh, sorry, between five and six months. Yep. So it was about Christmas. Then she started submitting it the following beginning of June, the following year. So that would have been two thousand nine. Right. Okay. Yeah. And then it came out in two thousand and ten. 
Yes. Okay, so what did, I mean, what was it, you've sort of said it was rejected countless times um, Mm. on your bio, on your website. What was it about this story that made you keep trying? Like, why did you think this is going to be all right in the end? I think I had 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 an agent previously and I'd had a book published by a very small press um, and I'd had, you know, close to, I'd had a book sitting in acquisitions for six months with my previous agent and but with Beautiful Mouse, and I and I had I found it quite easy to give up on the, that book, you know, when things didn't happen. But with Beautiful Mouse, I didn't feel the same. I I was I felt like it was definitely my best work. I felt like I loved the story, yeah. and I think that though the agents were a lot of them were rejecting it, a lot of them were saying I loved the story. You know, I couldn't put it down, but 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 don't know how to sell it. And I guess <laughs> I guess had this kind of dogged faith that a good story. Could work, would work for somebody, I suppose. So how many, like if you were sort of looking at your writing history, how many mm. novels had you written before this, before Beautiful Malice? Uh, three complete novels. And were they also young adult or were they adult novels? Um, one was probably what, uh, on the cusp, so university age yep. students, and that's one that I had an agent with and we, we um, went to acquisitions with a publisher in America. Um and so it would probably be what you would call new adult now, yeah. I guess. Yeah. And and I suppose Beautiful Malice kind of could have fit into that genre too. And that and so, but that genre or category or whatever you call it, new adult, didn't really exist then. People weren't talking about it. Right. So I guess because Beautiful Malice kind of sat there, um, that's why it was so hard to publish. But um, and and my prior book was too. Sorry, I'm getting confused. But the book that didn't ever go anywhere. Yep probably would have sat right there too. Okay. And the other two, one was an adult book and the other was an adult book. Okay. Yeah. So you'd basically, you had, you know, you'd, you'd had a practice with a few different different ideas before you got to Beautiful Malice. Yeah. 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 Okay. So once you actually got the book over the line with Alan and Unwin, things really mm. took off for you, didn't they? Like a lot of, uh, it ended up selling into a lot of territories. There were a lot of people interested in it. And of course, you know, the, uh, there was a lot of publicity around the fact that you ended up with quite a large advance out of that. I mean, what does that actually mean when you, what happens when you get a huge advance? Is it life-changing? Um, no, I mean, <laughs> It was certainly life-changing in the way I thought about writing because yep. I then thought, well, I can make this a job and I, in a way I kind of had to make it a job, at least for 2010 because I was travelling overseas and doing lots of writing gigs as um, so I didn't have time for much else and plus I was contracted for the next book yep. with most of the territories. Um, a huge advance, I mean, I guess it can mean different things. <laughs> you know, the, the newspapers just said, oh, well, you know, she sold her book for a million dollars when in fact... I sold two books over 52 countries and it added up to about a million dollars. So it was, um, I didn't get a big chunk of a million dollars suddenly sitting in my bank account. The money was spread out over my first two books. Um, yeah. And you so, had to, so you, and, and you essentially had the pressure of having to produce a second book. With yeah, that. I did. And I didn't, I didn't succeed. I mean, I, I went two years kind of over the deadline. So I guess I panicked. Okay, well, that was going to be my next question. You know, what yeah. happened next? Was there, like, huge pressure to live up to the hype that surrounded Beautiful Malice? Um, yeah, I think... I, I don't know. It's, it's hard even now in hindsight to think what happened and what went wrong or why I couldn't get the book out on time. But I think I did spend 2010 travelling. Um, 
<laughs> Sorry. Um, and uh, well, I don't even think I was thinking, gosh, can it live up to the hype? I, I don't think you sort of think in those terms yourself. It's certainly you're hoping that people will like it and that you, you have expectations from publishers. But I was in a little bit of a tricky situation because in Australia and in, you know, lots of the territories I was getting published into, they had published it as a YA book. In the States, they had published it as an adult book. Oh. So I did, I was expected, people did want me to write a book that could, you know, um, crossover book, as they call it. So, Again, right. Okay. Yeah, so that is actually quite hard. I mean, though I may have done it with Beautiful Malice, I hadn't intended to. So when someone says, okay, write another crossover, I found it a hard balance and okay. a hard thing to pull off when so, I had to do it. So yeah. it affected your writing from the perspective of, of you obviously you had to try a few different things till you got your second yeah. book together. Yeah. And in fact, so though my second published book ended up being Sweet Damage, which was published last year, the the initial contracted second book was Cooper Bartholomew, which is coming out in October. Okay, that's so interesting. So I wrote Cooper um, in 2010 as my second book, I submitted it and people weren't really happy. So the Americans said, you know, it's too young. And and it, it didn't kind of fit at the time. And um, so I put it aside, which may have been a mistake. You know, it's very easy to dump a book when it gets hard. And said, I'll write something else. And I said, I'll write Sweet Damage. So I have now come back and, you know, finished Sweet Cooper. And that's coming out in October and I'm really happy with it. But um that's yeah. great. So, so tell us about Cooper. I mean, it, you're, uh, this is very much firmly in the young adult area. Um, I, again, I find it hard to categorise my own work. Um, it's certainly very upper YA. Yeah. Um, the, the characters are at university. Um, a couple of the reviewers on Goodreads have said that they would call it... Um, New adult. New adult. Now that um, there's a category for it. <laughs> now that you can give that a label, yeah. I suppose. Um, and I don't mind. I have no objection to whatever category people want to put it in or how people want to define it. It's um, That's fine. Um, I think it could be an adult book. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think I'll wait for, to see what people say. But... Um, yeah, I okay. think. I mean, I like it as an. I like to think of it as an upper YA book. Okay. Yeah, right. and I, I would hope my audience are people from fifteen and up. Okay. All right. Yeah. So you, I mean, obviously writing for young people of yep. whichever a you know either young at heart or young people, um, is obviously could, your audience. Yeah, sorry, no, I don't think I, I don't think of it. As, I don't think of it as writing for young people because I don't think. Because that feels like I mean, I'm excluding adults, and I don't. I think I'm writing about young people. Okay, there you go. All right. Yeah. So, why do you write? Why? Why that particular audience? Why that particular? You know, why? Why are you writing about young people? Why did you choose that? Um, well, I think um, primarily right now is because I am in that. That is where my publishing. Um, that's where I'm being published at the moment. So, okay. in a professional sense. I kind of it would make sense to do that in a more artistic sense I enjoy that age because I think it's um it's interesting it's full of conflict you know there's there's a whole lot of firsts and a whole lot of you know people working out where they fit or where they want to fit and not that the whole concept of coming of age has always seemed odd to me because I I feel at 44 don't think I've necessarily come of age or, or that there comes a point where you know yourself or you know the answers so I think life's a continual process of coming of age but um I just think it's an interesting time and it's full of, you know, potential for conflict and, um, yeah. 
drama. So, so where did, um, with Cooper Bartholomew is dead, where did the idea for it come from? Um, sorry. Don't you love that, I love that question? I love that question. I love asking that question and I hate answering it. <laughs> Just to put the authors on the spot. Yeah. Um, um, I don't know, the, the place where they all, all come from, Alison, you know. Mm. You know where that is. Out in the ether somewhere. <laughs> yes, I don't know. <laughs> Was it the kind of idea where you... Because, you know, ideas are funny things. I think you can sometimes you have those ideas that just appear fully formed, like they've always been in the back of your mind and they're just waiting for you to write them down. And then you have other ideas which are like just a bit of a glimpse of something and you start to write and it begins to grow as you go. Which mm. which was mm. was it? I think mine have always been that glimpse. Okay. And because they've all of my books have changed a lot in the writing or I haven't known where they're going and it's, they've surprised me. So I think Cooper mainly just started with the idea. Um, sometimes talking about it feels like I'm making it up now. In right. My life, but <laughs> if, if the truest thing I can think to say is that I thought of you know, a very popular, very nice, genuinely nice boy being dead in mysterious in a mysterious way and the kind of impact that would have on the people who loved him yeah. and what they'd do. And that, so the, that was the kind of kernel of the idea and then it grew and stretched out and expanded from there. It became a whole book. It did, yes. <laughs> some people and actually various versions of the same book. <laughs> so well, how long does it take you to write a book? Like are you a person who plots every detail and then just sits down and bangs it out or do you just start or how does no, it work for you? No, I just start. I mean, I have a, an idea of what it's about and the kind of rough outline in my head. I barely even write anything. And um, like as in notes or spreadsheets, I don't do any of that. And if I do write notes, I tend to lose them. So it is just in my head and um, it changes as I go. So it, it takes a while and I'm a kind of, I write, so this is what I do. I sit down and I write, say, 800 words. Then I go away. The next day I come back, I read over those words again. I edit them as I go and then continue in a really boring, methodical way. Mm. So in one sense, in the kind of day-to-day -day writing sense, I'm quite boring and methodical and sit down and just do it A to B. But in, an, in another sense, in the big picture, I kind of have no idea what is going on either. So it's a bit... Um, so, you, well, I guess you, I mean, you, you have a good routine going. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. not to say I don't procrastinate a lot and that I actually do those 800 <laughs> words every day. But when I'm on a roll, that's how it might work. So but, how much redrafting do you do then? Like as far as like, once you get your first draft down, <clears throat> what happens after that? Well, with both Sweet Damage and Cooper, I did a lot. But I think the, the, your situation changes once you're published, I think. So with Beautiful Malice, if they'd been as messy, if, sorry, if it had been as messy as um, my second and third books when I was trying to get an agent, I wouldn't have got one. So, of course, I think it's probably true to say for a lot of people, your first book needs to be your tidiest and your best, the best you can do by the time you're sending it out. Right. And um, then... You know, with Sweet Damage and Cooper, I had people who wanted to see it. You know, so it, when, I, when I'd done the first draft, I was already showing people and then getting their feedback and getting help immediately. Right. So it's quite different. Um, I feel like with Beautiful Malice, though I had, I mean, I had already spent two years writing it, then another six months with my agent editing it, so that when I got my first edits, even though I had three editors, like an Australian, English, and American editor, it was quite easy and it wasn't huge. Structurally, yeah. it, it pretty much stayed the same. So, but with my second two, because I handed them in really early, or, you know, first draft kind of shape, they needed a lot more 
structural help. So right. okay, so so yeah. the, the drafting situation changes, you know, once you're actually over the line with something. I think so. Well, it has for me, and I, I don't know that it's necessarily the case for everyone. I think, and I don't necessarily know that, and I hope it's not like that with my next book. I'm actually hoping that it's a lot tidier when I hand in the first draft, and I don't have to tear it up so much and rewrite it. And but I would hope that all the time. Everyone hopes that things are easy. But, um, <laughs> are yeah, you working on a book now? Are you working on? Yeah, a new book? I am. Yep. And, and um, so, so, do you write every day when you're working on a book? Well, I intend to. Right. These are my intentions. <laughs> I see. But things um, get in the way. Children, not that they get in the way, but they might be sick. I might have a day off. Um, I might procrastinate on Facebook or Twitter. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I do. I try and write Monday to Friday while the kids are at school. Okay, so is, I was going to say that was my next question. How do you fit it in with the family? Like you treat it like your day job? Yes. Right, yeah. okay. At the moment. So at the moment I'm in the very fortunate position that I can do that. But, right, yeah. okay. So uh, speaking of Facebook and Twitter and all the other stuff, what are your thoughts on author platform? Like I know you have a blog um, mm-hmm. called Lollygag. Yep. Do you enjoy blogging? I... Uh, look, I, when I have put a written one and put it up, I enjoy it and I enjoy having people read it and uh, give me feedback. Um, I sometimes feel anxious about it in that I feel like, oh, I'm not doing it enough and then it can feel like a burden. Yeah. Um, you know, blogging twice a year is, by all accounts, really not the way to blog. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, the whole social media and author platform thing, I'm, I, I'm, I'm never certain about, and I talk to author friends about it, you know, a lot, but I, I can see the, the need for it. I also think it can be very distracting and take you away from the things you can control, which is your own work. Yeah. Um, I feel like it can, it can give you an illusion sometimes of things being really good because you can, you're just in a bubble of people talking about your book, which isn't necessarily reflecting the whole world. You know, you know, I then you talk to someone who's not on social media and, and they don't even know what Twitter is and you think, yeah. you know, who am I talking to on Twitter anyway? People who are already converted. So I, I don't know. It's, it's, um, it's a strange thing that I, I, I don't have any clear answers about on or, yeah. So uh, it confuses me. So <laughs> I where confuse do you, myself. Where do you actually like? Where do you put your social media efforts? Your Twitter and Facebook are those are those Twitter, your main two? Yeah, Facebook and Facebook's also my family and friends. So that feels a bit of a mix between just socialising and um, you know book publicity, uh, and then yeah, but that's about it, I guess. And okay. I blog. About twice or three times a year. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> Good start. Do you do? Um, are you a, an author that does a lot of speaking engagements? Are you going to writers' festivals or library talks or any of that sort of stuff? Like as far as well, that goes. I mean, hopefully, when Cooper comes out, there will be a few events which I will will, will certainly then blog and tweet and Facebook about. Yeah. Um, but no, I don't. You know, no, most of my life is just at home with my kids and being a mum and a writer at home. That's basically. That's yeah. the reality of it, isn't it? Yeah, the that's reality the reality of, the of it. <laughs> I, I mean, some people do do a lot of school events and things like that, but that that's not what I do or, yeah, it hasn't really happened. Okay. is that and, and is that just because, you know, is that because you're so busy with your family that you don't sort of seek that sort of stuff up, out or yeah, do you I not think enjoy so. public speaking? And I, I, I feel, I don't, I feel like it would take a lot away from writing. Like writing feels like it's, um, 
already so hard to get a role on for, mm. you know, just having four kids and stuff. And so the writing day feels quite short and limited. So by the time, for example, you know, you've, I've taken the kids to school, cleaned up a little bit, you know, I might sit down at 10 o'clock and then at 2 it's kind of time to stop. So four hours isn't a great amount of time. So if I also had to do school visits and things like that, I just feel like it would really limit it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you mentioned you have an agent. Um, what made you decide to get an agent in the first place? Why did you go down that road? Um, I think because what, what what I mean, I did most of my research just on the net of how to you know get published, and I think just what I was reading on different writer forums and different writers' blogs and the people who put this information on the net um, was that that was the best way to go. So, okay. and I think uh, there wasn't. There weren't many publishers taking um, unsolicited manuscripts at the time. And it just seemed really hard. I mean, yeah, it seemed like a really hard kind of thing to do. I guess, yeah, and also you could email an agent. You could just email them and they would respond. Right. Whereas it's much harder to print out a manuscript and post it to a publisher and wait yeah. you know, a year to hear yeah. back or what it could be. And I guess I'm kind of someone who likes immediate responses and emailing an agent seems... The way forward. Yeah, the way for the way to go. Yeah. All right. So, what? Um, let's talk about writer's block. Do you ever suffer from writer's block? Oh yeah, every day. I mean, I I can just sit there and think, oh, I, I can't think of a word to say, and I can't, or I can think of what I need to say, but I can't get the words out, or this is torture. You know, it's hard work, but then uh, the more practical sense, I think, you just have to sit there and do the work and get yeah. the words out. So. Yeah. So what do you do to overcome it? Is it just a matter of I'm just you sit there until you get it done or yeah, do you go for a walk or do you do, you know, is, is there anything that you do on a regular basis to kind of keep things rolling along? Um, I think just sitting there doing it really, yeah. I don't have any particular um, conscious thing that I would do to okay. overcome it. But, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of cups of tea. I, I would get up and sometimes just hang out some wet washing. Yeah, <laughs> I find that really mind. therapeutic. I like yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, and sometimes just doing a bit of housework, something different, something more physical is just a nice way to break it up. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I do think, but always it's going to come down to sitting back down on the chair and just working through the hard bits. But, yeah. So I do think it's more It's like walking through concrete some days, isn't it? Yeah, just, yeah, it's just hard sometimes. And it's, it's, it's a long, it's a long task, isn't it? Writing a whole book, you know, up to 80,000 words by yourself before you really get any feedback or, or reward for your work. So, yeah, it's a long thing to do, a long and lonely process. All right. So the last, um, thing I would ask you is what are your three top tips for writers? Oh, um, well, I should have had these ready at the top of my head. I know, this but, is always the way, because I just <laughs> like to spring these on the end. I should warn people, really, shouldn't I? <laughs> well, I, I'll, think, I'll say three top things and later be thinking, no, that's not that. I, I should have said something else. Um, I think you have to read a lot, write a lot, edit a lot, um, and keep trying. Those are excellent things. That's four things, isn't it? It is four. So you've even you've you've over de- you've over delivered and everything. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> I can't count. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Rebecca. It's been great chatting with you, and good luck with Cooper. I hope he um, goes out into the world and is greeted with open arms. Um, and yeah, thanks very much for your time. Pleasure. Thank you. That was a great interview, Al. Yeah. Look, I, as I said, I I think it was um, a really interesting 
insight into the world of publishing and, you know, everybody thinks that the big splash of success is is that's it, you're in, you're done for life. But mm. in actual fact, you know, as you said, even with our Man Booker Prize winner before, it's it just, you know, follow up. It's hard work all the way. Yeah, definitely. Hmm. Well, moving on to something completely different, <laughs> our app pick for the week is called My Noise. <laughs> now, <laughs> regular listeners will probably gather that I'm kind of into these apps and this one can be found at mynoise.net. Mm-hmm. But basically, I think we've spoken previously about apps like Coffitivity, where you can where where you can put it on in the background and it makes the noise the ambient noise of a cafe so that you can pretend that you're working and typing away in a cafe and also a couple of other apps but this particular one has a huge number of noises that you can choose from mm. ranging from white noise gray noise Babble noise. <laughs> what is grey noise? Well, it's it's apparently a very, very hard uh, noise to replicate, um, extremely difficult and only discernible by certain people. <laughs> what? There is a jungle noise. There is, if you really want to, distant thunder. <laughs> oh, yeah. What? But there's also Why? there's also um, uh, ones there's also a Tibetan choir if you want, and there's one called Osmosis. I don't know what that one sounds like. I haven't played that one, but I have wasted quite a bit of time listening to the various noises. There are many, many, many noises. Um, so yeah, you can have cabin noise or rail car noise, or if you really miss your commute, traffic noise. So wide range of noises to choose from if you just want some ambient noise in the background. What do you listen to? What's your favourite? What if you? What would you choose as your personal choice well, from the many? I, there are so many on this one, so many that I haven't I- investigated enough to really I'm, – I'm too scared to actually investigate too many in case I go down this rabbit hole of listening to noises all day. But generally, I um, – <laughs> Am I I'm making like, that noise again? <laughs> <laughs> I do. Yes. There, there's, there's also a noise called Three Friends. I haven't listened to that one either. But um, um, it, it, I generally I do like um, sort of like wind rustling, gentle wind. I don't want I mean, thunderstorm. Can't you just open a window? <laughs> just... Yeah, yes. Yeah. Like I do open okay. the window in Sydney, but sometimes when I'm in Victoria it's too cold. So I look out the window and I put the noise on. Okay. <laughs> so that's just something a bit different. And I'm sure, I'm sure there are other people pe- love it. Yeah, well, I'm sure there are people, other people out there who like some background noise. Please okay, I'm going to tell you know us. What? I'm gonna, I was going to say, I'm going to ask, can you let us know if you are someone who likes background noises, please share that with us because. I personally am all about the sound of silence and I I think it's because my house is so noisy all the time that when my children go to school and it's quiet, I am such a happy person. Um, but I, I bow down to the greater good and if there are lots of people out there that like different noises, then please tell us, what's your favourite one? I really want to know. Are you a cafe <laughs> noise person? Are you, are you wind in the willows? What is your thing? Please let us know. Email us. 
Yes, email us or tell us on Twitter and email yeah. us at uh, podcast at writerscentre.com.au. But that brings us to our working writers tip because, um, you know, noise impacts this decision. Yes. And that is where is the best place to do an interview. Now, I'm talking specifically about an interview where you're a freelance writer and you're interviewing a case study or an expert or a subject for your uh, art, for the article that you're writing. I'm not talking about a job interview. So <laughs> what, what do you think? What is the, where is the best place to do an interview? Alison? Really? The best place for me to do an interview is over the phone from my office where it's quiet and I can type at the same time so I never have to transcribe because I hate transcribing so much. Yeah. Um, so that's where I tend to do most of mine, particularly if I'm if it's an expert and I'm just needing a few quotes or if it's a case study and I just need to get the essence of the story. If it's a profile, then clearly, you know, there needs to be further discussion and it's not just going to be like here I am on the phone with you. Yeah. Um, but generally speaking, if, if, it's, if, if the person I'm talking to is not the main focus of the article, then I you know, is just an adjunct, is an expert within the article or a case study within the article, then I do it on the phone and yep. I am happy to do that. I never, ever, if I have to interview someone face-to-face, -face, I try to go to an office, a quiet hotel, foyer, yep. somewhere like that. I never do it in cafes. I know people think, oh, I'm going to go and interview someone in a cafe. It's going to be so cool. We'll have mm. coffee. We'll chat. Because all I can say to that is that if you've ever tried to transcribe a tape with mm. cafe background noise in it, you will never do it again. Exactly. Ever. It's a rookie mistake. It's the it biggest is. rookie mistake out there. People think they'll meet in a cafe and it is the single worst place because that cappuccino machine yeah. is the only thing you're going to hear in your recording. Absolutely. So, and yeah. you're sitting there trying to get the essence of that absolutely essential quote and there's mm. like a <laughs> right through the middle of it. How's it and go then, again? Yeah. <laughs> What do you think? Yeah, reckon I, do you reckon I've got a few tears yeah. in impersonator? Yeah. You could be on that um, on that app on <laughs> mynoise.net. You could have your own maybe, noise. Hey, maybe I'll get the app and start practicing some other noises. Yeah. That'd be good. <laughs> good on you. All right. That brings us to the end of our podcast this week. We appreciate all of your comments and emails and reviews on iTunes. Thank you to those of you who have been reviewing and leaving us reviews on iTunes. We really appreciate it. If you have a question, make sure you email us. Um, you can find all our contact details uh, at um, our show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast. But if you do want to tweet us, you will, you'll also find us at uh, – where do we find you, Al? I'm at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I Tate. Oh, T-A-I-T. <laughs> I'll try that again. A-L-T-A-I-T. <laughs> and I'm at Valerie Koo on Twitter. Um, but thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it and we look forward to chatting to you next week. Bye. Bye.